0: Father, we ask that you would speak your words to us, that you'd enable us to know how to, how we should respond in these days as your children, and Jesus as your followers. So, Lord, we ask that your words would put in our hearts and you'd change our lives. And I pray, Lord, for the body of Christ around this country, Lord, that we would really know how to live in these days. And we ask that you would, uh, cause this message that we hear even today, Lord, this message be preached, Lord, around the country, that the church might really look like Jesus during this time. In his name we pray, amen. Now, my plan this morning was to actually continue the series that we started in the book of Nehemiah as we've been transitioning out of the coronavirus stay-home orders and have begun rebuilding our ministries of our church. But due to these events of this past week, we really do need to interrupt that series. You know, when the coronavirus hit, we focused on what God's word has to say about uh, that pandemic and how we as the people of God should respond uh, in times like that. Well, as we watched really in horror the unfolding of the events of this last week, again, we want to focus on what Jesus has to say about these kinds of events and how we as his followers should respond in such times. And so I want to jump right into it again. Our goal is we're the four followers of Jesus Christ. We want to know what he says to do, and that's what we do. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to jump right into what Jesus says. Now, as we jump into this, I want to encourage you to really be paying attention to the whole flow of what he says. And I also urge you to listen to this entire message before you conclude right off the bat where this is going. Let's just really patiently follow what Jesus has to say. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. It's a Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what is Jesus saying here? And one of the things we need to understand to really understand the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus does most of this sermon. Most of this sermon, he talks about three things. First, he talks about what the law of Moses actually says in the Old Testament. Then he follows that up by correcting, really, the, how the Pharisees and the scribes have corrupted that Old Testament law. And thirdly, he then weighs in himself as the living word of God, and tells the truth about that subject, clearly, simply. So let's apply that to this passage here. First of all, does this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, actually show up in the Old Testament in the law of Moses? Well, the answer is, yes, it does. But at this point, it is very important that we understand where it appears In the law of Moses. So we need to remember that the law of Moses in the Old Testament was civil as well as moral code. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments. That is clearly a moral law. Exodus chapter 21 through 23, on the the other hand, contains a series of ordinances in which the standards of the Ten Commandments are applied to the civic life of Israel, kind of like city ordinances or state and federal laws, how the government would function, the government of Israel would function. In fact, in Exodus 21 through 23, you have a wide variety of case laws that are given with a particular emphasis on what to do when there's been a person has been harmed or damaged or property has been damaged. Now, in the course of this legislation of civil laws, that is where this, these words occur. In fact, let me read it to you. Exodus 21, verse 22 through 25. When men strive together, when there is some conflict, if any harm follows, then you shall give Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, the context makes it clear beyond question that this was an instruction to the judges of Israel. Indeed, they're mentioned specifically. In fact, let's look at Deuteronomy 19, verse 17 and 18 actually 17 through 21, I'll summarize it here. It says, then both men who have the dispute shall stand before the judges. The judges shall shall investigate thoroughly. Then you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So it expressed the principle of exact retribution, exact retribution, whose purpose now was to both to lay the foundation of justice, specifying what kind of punishment for the crime, whatever was the wrongdoer really deserved, what was appropriate. But also this law was to limit the compensation and make sure that it was the exact equivalent and no more. In other words, it was to actually limit the amount of of compensation the victim could uh, receive. So it really had a double effect. It both defined justice and restrained revenge. That was the point of the law. It also prohibited the taking of the law into one's own hands by the vengeance of an individual or a mob. But the scribes and the Pharisees evidently extended the principle of just retribution from the law courts where it belonged to the realm of, the, of personal relationships where it does not belong. So what they were trying to do, the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders of, 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 of this apostate state of Israel at the time, they were trying to justify personal revenge although the the Old Testament law explicitly forbids doing that. Leviticus 19.18 says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people. So this excellent principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing that it was instituted to abolish, namely, Personal revenge. Now, what Jesus teaches is that this principle, though it pertains to the law courts, it is not applicable to our personal relationships. Our personal relationships are to be based on love, not justice. So, what Jesus is simply saying here is: Do not take revenge on on someone who's wronged you. Don't take revenge. Now, here's the problem. The problem is you can have grown up in the church your whole life. You can hear these verses hundreds of times. You can even have memorized them. But then something happens to you where there's been a great injustice done to you, some evil or danger or threat. And a lot of times these verses, as, even as a Christian, go right out the window. And that's what I believe we're seeing happen in many places across our country on these nights where the protests have turned Into riots. There's even those who call themselves Christians, followers of Christ, that believe that their pursuit of vengeance is justified. Now, striking back may feel good. It may even feel right to do it, but Jesus says it's wrong. Now, you may say, you may say, well, listen, Gary, you don't understand. If if you were, if you experienced what I experienced, the injustice the bigotry, the persecution, then you would know you want to strike back. But here's the point that Jesus wants us to understand. that striking back may feel good for the moment. but Listen to this. But it further alienates the other person so that reconciliation becomes even more remote. And it feeds to the, downrolled, the downward spiral of hostility. And that spiral, by the way, is going to continue to go on until somebody is willing to absorb a blow, to accept an insult, to swallow their pride, to pull the plug on their Rambo-sized egos and refuse to strike back. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, and that's what I want my people to do. My people should be acting different than the other people. You see, this attitude of turning the other cheek is not surrendering. It's a love-driven strategy to stop the escalating violence in personal relationships. These four mini illustrations that we're going to see Jesus tells back to back to back to back are basically he is, a, he is speaking of the principle of Christian non-retaliation. And he's going to indicate the lengths that we must go to in order to do this. And these are like vivid little illustrations, vivid little cameos of different life situations. Let me just read them, four of them in a row. Matthew five thirty-nine. This is Jesus, Son of God, all authority in heaven and earth, says this. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him two. And give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now each of these introduce a per- introduces a person who seeks to do us an insult or an injury or to take advantage of us, one by hitting us in the face, another by suing us, a third by commandeering our service, and a fourth by extracting money from us. And we already commented on the first one. but Let's look at the second one, verse 40 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. The only way a man could take your shirt from you in a lawsuit was if you pledged it as security for your debt, and then you did not pay your debt. So let's make sure we read these words of Jesus correctly. He's saying, if you have a debt and you haven't paid it and you get sued as a result then do more than is legally required of you to make the debt right. So Jesus would say this, as much as you can, you want to settle this dispute that leads to this lawsuit with complete and total satisfaction of the other person. So I don't want to give you any reason to have hard feelings for me. So, so here, you know, I pledge the shirt, here, take the shirt. And you know what? Take my coat too. Because I don't want any hard feelings. I want to go the extra distance to make things right. That's the spirit of what he's saying. So he's saying, if you've wronged anyone, then Jesus is challenging you to make full restitution and then do more. More than is required of you. Then he goes on to the third one, verse 41. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with them too. Now, when Jesus spoke these words, he was referring to this common custom of that day in Roman-occupied lands. Roman soldiers, under Roman law, were allowed to force a civilian to carry their pack for one mile. Now, needless to say, that would cause a lot of great inconvenience to a lot of civilians. Imagine you are about, you got, you got plans for that day. You got, maybe you got a business meeting. And suddenly a Roman soldier stops you and says, carry my pack for the next mile. Well, Jesus told his followers, when that happens, instead of walking just one mile with him, offer to go two. Why? Why does Jesus want us to live like this? Well, there's no greater way to show God's love than to be kind to someone who's not been kind to you. By the way, if you have a job, more than likely, some of you could probably attest to this, you you could put this principle into place. You feel like your boss is oppressive. He's asking unreasonable things of you, of your schedule, of what he expects from you. Well, what Jesus would say to you is when that happens, go the extra mile. Go out of your way to show kindness to that unreasonable boss. He demands an extra hour, give him two. But there's a trick to it, it's In in order for this to really work to get the full effect, you got to do it with a good attitude. You got to do it cheerfully and enthusiastically. Now, I think Jesus would say, "I know this is hard to understand, but see, but I love your boss, or I love that teacher that's unreasonable, and I really, I want to break through to them, and I know the way to break through to them is the power of sacrificial love that I want you to show to them." Servanthood draws people toward Christ. And that's what Christ wants us to be. He wants us to be over-the-top servants. Well, the next illustration that Jesus gives on non-retaliation, fourth one, is this, verse 42. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, it's interesting that Jesus included this verse along with the verses that talk about how we should treat our enemies. I think he did it because this is the context in which we need to really hear it. I mean, most of us, I think, are probably pretty willing to give something to our friends and maybe even loan to somebody we like. But Jesus says that's not enough. Jesus says don't be generous only with your friends, but even be generous to those who want to take advantage of you. you may find sometime that you have the opportunity to help somebody who's been horrible to you. Well, Jesus would say, help them anyway. Or you may have a chance to help someone who has been very unfriendly to you in the past. Jesus would say, help them anyway. In each of these four situations that Jesus just talks about, Jesus says it is our Christian duty not only to refuse to retaliate, It is even to allow this evil person to double their insult or injury to us and absorb it. Now, what is the point of all this? The point is to live lives of selfless love to others who, even when they injure you, you refuse to take revenge And then to go beyond that to actually return that evil with good. And what you do, you are actually doing something that is very powerful and life-changing in that person's life. So Jesus is basically saying this. So give everything you have, your body, your clothing, your service, even your money, in order to return good for evil. Now, it's important to note that Christ... Teaching here was not to forbid. I mean, here it was to it was to forbid personal revenge, but not to encourage injustice, dishonesty, or wickedness. Jesus is teaching in how we are to relate to other people in our personal lives. He's not teaching how the state is to function, how the police or the government is to function here. In fact, it's really interesting. The Apostle Paul, what he teaches in Romans chapter 12, he will teach about our individual responsibility towards someone who has done us wrong. Then in Romans chapter 13, he'll talk about the government's responsibility towards someone who's done wrong. Back to back, Romans 12, Romans 13, the Apostle Paul, as he writes his epistle to the Christians in Rome, here's what he says in chapter 12. In chapter 12, the focus is the individual's responsibility toward a wrongdoer. Here's what he says. Repay no one, no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourself, never. But leave it to the wrath of God, for God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil, with good. That's Romans chapter 12. That's our individual responsibility toward someone who's done us wrong. Then we get to Romans chapter 13. Now he's going to talk about the role of the state to, to punish evildoers. Romans 13. Let me just read it to you. Just listen carefully. Let every person, every person, be in subjection to the governing authorities He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So here it is. This makes it clear that though we do not seek revenge on the personal level, It is the responsibility of the state to uphold justice in our society. For example, how does that work? Let's say a thief breaks into my house and I catch him. Well, personally, I can forgive him for that. I may even make him a sandwich (laughs) as I wait for the police to come (laughs) because he's broken the law. See, I can forgive him personally, even show love to him, but because he's broken the law, he has to face the consequences of the state. By the same is true in abuse. If someone has abused you, forgive them. And if they've broken the law, report it to the authorities. There's consequences. The state enforces that. So again, to to sum up the teaching of these examples that Jesus has given, Jesus is not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather he's forbidding us personally to take the law into our own hands. An eye for an eye is a principle of justice belonging to the courts of law, to the state, not to personal relationships. So what Jesus demands here for all of his followers, that's us, is a personal attitude toward evildoers, which is prompted by mercy, not justice, which renounces retaliation so completely, so completely renouncing retaliation as to risk further costly suffering which is governed never by this desire to cause harm on them, but always determining somehow to bring about their highest good. So we want to return good for evil. Now Jesus isn't even done here. He's going to build on this. Here's what he says next. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous for if you love those who love you what reward have you do not even the tax gatherers do the same and if you greet your brothers only what do you do more than others do not even gentiles do the same therefore you his followers us you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So once again, we see how the scribes and the Pharisees have perverted the Old Testament law of Moses. They quote part of it, right? They're correct when they say, love your neighbor, but they leave out a crucial part of that verse that says, as yourself. They leave that out. And then they define neighbors as a small group of people that excludes all their enemies. And then they add the phrase, the Pharisees, wrongly add the phrase and hate your enemy. So Jesus makes it patently clear that in the vocabulary of God our neighbor is includes our enemies. In fact, what constitutes a neighbor in the Bible is any fellow human being in need whose need I'm in a position to somehow meet. That's my neighbor. That's what Jesus points out with the parable of the good Samaritan. When he asks who's my neighbor, Jesus also makes it clear that loving our neighbors is not about feelings. It's about practical, humble, sacrificial service, no matter how you feel about them. It's not only about what we do, it's about what we say. He he says, bless those who curse you. So if if they call down on you disaster and catastrophe on your head, expressing words they wish for your downfall with all kinds of Colorful language. And then our response is to call down blessing on them. Declaring in words that we wish nothing but good for them. And it's not only what we say, it's also what we pray. He says, pray for those who persecute you. I mean, when Jesus was going, when he was being crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, that actually, when he prays that, it's in the the imperfect tense, which suggests that he kept praying it over and over and over as they hammer the nails in his hands, his feet, over and over. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. So, this commandment that we should love our enemies and forego revenge is so important that we learn, that we start learning this because I tell you, the days are coming. When lawlessness continues to increase, when most people's love grows cold, that we as followers of Christ have got to continue to love those who hate and do good to those who do evil. And that is going to be the pow- powerful thing that changes the world. I tell you, that world revival would break out. The body of Christ begins to do this. Well, Jesus goes on says, For if you love... Those who love you, what reward have you? There's no reward for that. Even sinners love those who love them. I mean, even a mafia loves their families. Our righteousness is to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and our love is to go beyond, surpass the love of the Gentiles. We are to love those who are not loving he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the context here is being perfect as it relates to love. The perfect love that our heavenly Father shows is he loves people who do not even return the love. And Jesus says, that's how I want you to love. Love people who will not even return it. It's Ingrained in the non-Christian culture that we live in, it is a non-Christian culture primarily that we live in, Both the retaliation of evil and the retaliation of good is is normative. People, basically, the mentality is you do me wrong, I'll do you wrong back. You do me good, I'll do you good back. So the retaliation, the way the world is revenge, take revenge on one hand and then recompense on the other. Pay back injury with injury, but pay back favor with favor. That's the way of the world. That is not the way of the Christ follower. The model that Jesus gives us here is his heavenly father who is kind to evil people as well as to good people. That's how we are to be, perfect like he's that, that way. The pattern of the world is avenge injuries, return favors. The pattern for the kingdom of God is based on divine love. Refuse to take revenge all the time, personally, no revenge, and commit to overcome evil with good. If only we, I mean all might begin to love like this. I mean, just think about it. If Christians around the world did this, revival would break out on the earth. The power of this would be unleashed. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was a young 20-something Baptist preacher in Montgomery, Alabama. Through some odd circumstances, he found himself as the leader of the bus boycott That began when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus. And as the boycott progressed, King started hearing rumors that the white authorities in Montgomery wanted to get rid of him. In Montgomery, Alabama in 1956, if you were a black man and someone wanted to get rid of you, you knew what that meant. Well, it came to a head on the night of January 27th King was asleep in his small home with his young wife and their two month old baby girl when he was awakened by a phone call. The essence of the call was that if King was not out of town in three days, they were going to kill him and they're going to bomb his house. Well, he hung up the phone and he was so bothered and so disturbed that he couldn't go back to sleep, so he poured himself a cup of coffee. He sat down at the kitchen table. And though his wife is in the bedroom next door and his two-month-old baby girl, he began to just drop his face and his, his head in his hands and began to pray. In his words, he was paralyzed in fear. But then he goes on and said, but then something happened that he didn't expect that changed the course of his life, and the case can be made, significantly changed the course of American history. As he was sitting there with his hands on his face, over his cup of coffee, confessing his fears and his his anxieties to God. He said he felt the presence of God come in the room and he felt a stirring in his soul he had never felt before. He said then he heard a voice, an inner voice, and this is what the voice said to him. Stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. He goes on to say, "The voice promised he'd never, never leave me. He would never, never leave me alone. He promised he'd never, 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 never leave me." Well, in that moment, in the middle of that night, in that hour when darkness seemed to reign, King had this supernatural, inexplicable encounter with a living God, and what radically changed Martin Luther King that night was this inexplicable sense that God was going to be with him from here on. He says, that changed my life, that changed my outlook, that changed my perspective. You see, our perspective of the world is that it's a place where justice really is hard to come by. Our perception tends to be of the world that it's a place where, you know, goodness is always marred by the shadow of evil. Our perception of the world tends to be that life itself really is in short supply and must be defended and must be fought for. But what if this really is a God-with-us universe? What if this really is a God-with-us world? And what the Apostle Paul said is true. If God is forced, then who can be against us? And if this is a God-with-us world, think about this then we don't have to worry that injustice is going to have the last word because God promises that he's going to make all things right one day. Justice will never have the, injustice will never have the last word. If this is a God with us world, then goodness is not forever under the shadow of evil, but goodness is expanding and breaking forth with the expansion of the kingdom of God. And if this is a God with this world, life is not in short supply. Life is abundant for the follower of Christ, and life will never end for us. So, if this, if this is a God with this world, then I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to hit the person who hit me. I don't have to worry about, you know, giving my shirt and my coat. Take them both. In fact. In a God-with-us world, I am so set free from anger, from hatred, from fear, that I can actually love the person who wants to harm me. See, here's our core problem. The core problem we have with the Sermon on the Mount isn't that we think Jesus' teaching is just crazy. Our core problem is that we don't see the world that Jesus sees. We see a world of injustice and anger and hatred and violence a world where everything's you know where everything's in short supply and life is fragile and we got to fight for it hold on to it. But Jesus sees a world where his father is in control and justice is guaranteed to come and goodness will break out one day and the glory of God will fill the earth like water fills the sea and he sees all history headed that direction. And if we begin to see the world through the lens of the Bible, then what Jesus tells us to do and how he informs us to live begins to make perfect sense. See, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that this means you don't, that you need to tolerate everything that happens to you. It means that in everything, we seek what is good for others, not for ourselves. Because we ourselves, listen to this, because we ourselves are going to be just fine. Better than fine. God will make sure of that. Well, just four days after Martin Luther King's coffee cup conversation with God, his new vision of the world was put to the test. Four days after this sleepless night at home, he was speaking at a rally for the bus boycott when around 9 p.m. that night, a young man ran into the service and announced that Martin Luther King's house had just been bombed. The house where his wife and two-month-old daughter were staying at that time. Well, King ran out of the rally, he ran down the street, and he found his home still on fire. The police were there. The fire officials were there. And a large angry mob of black citizens from Montgomery, Alabama were around the house with guns and rifles and baseball bats ready to riot because of this attack on their leader's home. Once King found out that his wife and daughter were safe, he got on the porch of his house that had just been firebombed and on fire, just got firebombed by the Klan. And he stood on the burning porch and he looked out at this angry crowd of black citizens ready to riot, and King preached a sermon. And here's what he said. He said, I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let them know you love them. What we are doing is right. What we are doing is just, and God is with us. Go home now with that glowing faith. Now, can you imagine him saying that with the night sky ablaze with fire from his house in the background? Go home now with glowing faith, with this radiant assurance, God is with us. We cannot lose. And then this angry mob put down their guns, put down their baseball bats, spontaneously broke out singing Amazing Grace. They sang, they cried, they hugged, and they peacefully went back to their homes. Now, how do you explain that dramatic shift from ready for vengeance to being at peace with God? That he's got it. Well, later, King gave a message on why he turned the other cheek. This is what he said, and I hope you never forget this. He said, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence and is just as injurious to the person who hates as it is to his victim. But above all, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. The reason why We look so crazy as Christians sometimes is because we see the world differently than the rest of the the world sees it. We see really a God with us world. And if if we have a God with us world, that means we, all of his followers, we are perfectly safe. So safe, so set free that we can even love our enemies without thought of the consequences without thoughts that so somehow i got to balance the scales and make sure to make justice happen myself. Because I know God's got this. So I want to ask you in this room, I want to ask you online, what kind of world do you see? What kind of world do you see? Do you see a world of evil and danger and threats, a world in which your life is in constant peril, in which you must live in fear, and you must make sure that you somehow manage it all? A world that you have to avenge yourself, bring justice? Or do you see a God with you world, a world where he will make everything right in the end? A world where we can let him balance the scales in due time. A world that desperately needs to see some good return for evil and some love return for hate. A world that desperately needs to see followers of Christ act, Look, act, and speak like Jesus. Amen. By loving your enemies and loving them to the end. It's important that we learn this, Good time to learn this lesson because it's going to be challenged more and more in the days to come. As lawlessness increases, that the body of Christ is behaving very differently than the rest of the world. And I pray for voices to rise up all over this land. They'll speak the truth that Martin Luther King spoke, which is simply the truth that Jesus spoke. That's the only hope. Or this thing will keep, keep just accelerating, escalating, till somebody will say, let's do it the Jesus way. It's the only way that works. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we ask you to, to help us with the situation in our country. Lord, would you pray that you would guide leaders at the federal level, the state level, the local level, those who have these positions of authority, give them wisdom? Lord, we know you hate racism. And we pray, Lord, that you would so work in our leaders around the country that they would, they would lead in such a way that actually can be used by you to lessen all those tensions and not increase them. And, Lord, we pray for Christians around this country, Lord, that we would learn, Jesus, to do things your way, that we would be those who return good for evil and love for hate. So, Lord, I just pray that you raise voices up all over this land that would just speak what Jesus spoke because you're the only hope that this country has. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that. We pray you would guide us now, Lord, in these days to come, that we would know how to grow in this and be those kind of followers that look and act like you. In Jesus' name.